Representative Steve Bloom grew up in a very liberal home, but he became one of the most conservative members of the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives. Steve retires at the end of November, but he isn't going very far away at all. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and uh, I am in uh, Harrisburg with a state representative, Steve Bloom, uh, state representative for now. Uh, he is going to be retiring uh, at the beginning of December, I guess. End of November is when the paychecks stop coming. Steve, welcome to Brews and Views. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be with you here. Yeah, so, so you are finishing out your term. You decided early on not to run for a, another term. You've been in office since, uh, what, 2010, I think was the... Correct. Elected in the fall of 2010. Okay. Sworn in January 2011. Okay. Well, uh, and you, uh, I want to get into kind of what you're going to do after, because uh, that's exciting stuff. Uh, but uh, first of all, let, let's talk about, uh, you know, where you grew up, Steve, so people can get to know a little bit about you uh, and uh, what drove you into, into politics. Uh, well, sure. It, it's a complicated story. I, I didn't have a... Uh a simple childhood. So I was born in New York. Okay. Uh, in in uh, Far Rockaway, which is actually part of New York City, right out on Long Island, and lived there for a while as a little kid. Then we moved up to Troy, New York, which is upstate, and uh, lived there from preschool through first grade. Then we moved out to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I spent four years living in Ann Arbor, uh, going to school there up until uh, fifth grade. Then we moved to Media, Pennsylvania, down in Delaware County, and that sixth grade through high school is where, where I finished my, my growing up years. Okay. And then, of course, uh, went to Penn State for undergrad and uh, ended up, at first at Penn State, I kind of missed the bustle of the, the suburban Philadelphia area with all the, uh, the activities and the radio stations and media and big pro sports teams and all that kind of stuff. But after two years at Penn State, I really fell in love with rural Pennsylvania and ultimately uh, met my wife to be there at Penn State. We got married shortly after graduation. So you've, you've gone really fast here, Steve. What, so so let, let, let's yeah. go back a yeah. little bit. So you, you grew, I mean, what moved you around? What was well, your... My dad your was dad? A, um, a college professor. So okay. when, I was, when, I was, um, when I was born, he was actually still a grad student. Mm -hmm. And then he got his first job teaching at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, up in Troy. And so he was teaching uh, applied mathematics to engineering students. Then he ended up uh, getting a position at University of Michigan. Okay. So we went out there. And uh, the years in Ann Arbor were, were fascinating years. It was, it, I mean, um, Ann Arbor was kind of like the uh, Berkeley of the Midwest. Right. It, it still is. It, it yeah. was... It was uh, <laughs> It was the era of hippies and, and uh, all the social unrest. The Detroit riots had happened just a few years before we so got there. So you were pretty young. Where, I, I was mean, just but a you, kid. Okay. Yeah, second grade but you remember this? Or second grade through fifth grade. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. It was very, it was almost in your face. Mm. It was so, mm. so noticeable. And, uh, but during those years, my parents got divorced. And my mom wanted to get us back east. So that's what she found a position in, in uh, uh Delaware County, okay. uh, working. She's a social worker, lifelong social worker, and so she found a, a position working at a. It was a residential facility for uh, delinquent girls when she first 
I went to teach there, later became co-ed, or not teach, but to work with the kids there, and later became co-ed. And you have brothers and sisters? I have a brother, okay. a younger brother. Okay, uh, so four the, years the two of you moved so to? So the two of us, with my mom moved to, to okay. the Philadelphia area. My dad, though, was still teaching at Michigan, and then ultimately um, did a stint at Wayne State University mm-hmm. in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of our, our Christmases and our holidays, uh, school vacations, uh, chunks of the summer, my brother and I would fly out uh, to Michigan. So we, st- we spent a lot of time uh, still in Ann Arbor and then later on in Detroit. Then ultimately, my dad got a tenured position uh, at State University of New York at Buffalo. So for the, the last half of my childhood, really, we spent a lot of time uh, in the Buffalo area as well. So kind of an interesting, I always thought, a really interesting childhood. It was, you know, there was some ups and downs. Obviously, it's not a good thing when your parents get divorced. But all in all, um, you know, the way it worked out for my brother and I both, it, it kind of prepared us well for, for life mm-hmm. and um, learning and being engaged with, with society and culture. Were your parents uh, politically active? Yeah, I mean, and, so, and interestingly, okay. and, and I, I know I've told this story many times. I don't know if I've told it to you, but interestingly, they were very liberal, very democratic. Uh-huh. And my mom actually especially was, was politically active with working for local candidates doing, you know, uh, dropping off flyers at people's houses, uh, helping just as a general volunteer, mm. holding events at our home from time to time for local Democratic candidates, both in Michigan and later on in Pennsylvania. So that was, an, you know, that's the roots that I grew huh. up in. And as I, I have said before, I came by my conservatism very honestly in that I didn't set out to become a conservative. Right. I wasn't born into it. I just was an observant person who cared about the world. And, and as I got uh, a better understanding of the world through my 20s, um, I realized that, you know, democratic policies in general, liberal policies in general were, were trapping people in dependency. They were, they were putting people at a disadvantage. They were robbing people of their incentive to thrive and, and be successful. And so as your as your your thoughts, your philosophy of governance, uh, I would did I mean, when you first registered, did you register as a Democrat? Because oh, yeah. that was yeah. all right, because this yeah. is our family. We're Democrats, right? right? Uh, yeah. When I was 18, I registered as a Democrat. Um, so so how did that had those conversations uh, happen when, as you're saying, boy, uh, I don't see myself, uh, you know, aligning with my registration. I'm moving further to the right, if you will. Yeah. And it, as and I got I got. I studied economics in college. My, mm-hmm. my undergraduate degree from Penn State was in agricultural economics and rural sociology. As I began to understand economics, how um, societies actually respond to, to government policy uh, and, and, and uh, how left-wing policy in general thwarts and stifles the, the success of the free market and ultimately the, the success of the people living in a society, um, I could see that. I also, during my 20s, became a born-again believer so my, my views on social issues transformed very radically. Mm. I worked as an attorney then in the private sector, working with a lot of businesses, small businesses, farmers, some larger businesses. And I saw, again, how government was impeding people's ability to be successful. And people, you know, they're trying to start a business. They're trying to grow it, hire employees, provide a good or a service that people want and need. And yet the government is not even a neutral force in their lives, but actually a hostile force that's almost trying to to block them from being successful. And, and so all those things coming together, the economics, the real world observations, the faith issues, mm-hmm. and I ultimately became a very uh, full spectrum conservative. Right, right. Uh, so by the time I was in my 30s, I was, I was conservative and, and uh, Republican. And 
my you know my parents we we talked and argued over over political issues a lot. Then you know we still love each other. There was mm-hmm. no issues with uh, you, you know our family. They didn't excommunicate. We you weren't excommunicated, like, yes. right? <laughs> but but even to this day, my mom it's so, it's so funny because she my mom lives in in the Carlisle area as well. She moved up here uh, years ago after we had our kids, her grandkids, and um, she's voted for me a couple different times. She even changed her registration to Republican temporarily to vote for okay. me. Okay. Uh, in primary, but but she changed it back. But okay. but it doesn't mean she agrees with me at all. It's only because she's told me she just would have felt really bad being my mom if I would lose by one vote because she voted against me. So how funny. Well, at least the, at least you can count that vote uh, right, in your comp. Right. So so you ended up going to law school. What was it that uh, caused you? So you're studying economics and um, agriculture. Uh, Why did you decide? Uh, hey, I want to pursue law school because I know that that's what you were. You were a practicing lawyer for, for right. many I, years. Right. I was. My my major was ag economics and rural sociology, but I had was called an option, which is called the, called the resource economics option. So I took a lot of a lot of courses relating to energy, uh, so oil, gas, hmm. coal, um, fuels, and and the economics of those kind of issues, natural resource issues surrounding the energy markets. So I was real interested in in, in that topic in general. I also was very interested in uh, doing things that might allow for reuse of, of former industrial sites, urban areas that had, that had suffered from urban blight, that I thought, you know, there might be ways as an attorney you could work to make those, those areas more productive, mm-hmm. uh, turn them from being wastelands into being something useful and beneficial to the economy. So that was really my, my motivation when I first went to law school. I was thinking I was going to get into those kind of, uh, that kind of field maybe environmental law or, or something like that where you're, you're helping in a practical way to, to um, you know, help with the resource allocation uh, process and, and uh, just using, using former industrial sites and that kind of um, property to, to, to do, do something good for society. Mm-hmm. Once I got into law school, began taking courses, I didn't really end up going in that direction. Went, I was more interested in, in, in some courses I took in tax law uh, courses in in property law, those kind of things. That uh, ultimately, when I got out of school, I, I decided I wanted to get into private practice of law. Mm-hmm. And so, I never got into that sort of quasi public type law practice I, I envisioned, but rather just went to join a, a uh, traditional law firm in the Carlisle area, and started there as a law clerk my senior year. Became a an associate, worked as an associate for five years, and then became a partner and stayed at that firm for a total of twelve years, uh, doing a wide variety of business law, stuff on the on the constructive side of the law practice, like mm-hmm. helping people buy a house, buy a farm, buy a business, merge a business, um, start up a business, get, gather investors, get bank financing for transactions, doing land use law, helping, helping folks get approvals for whatever expansions or, or construction projects they were trying to do, all that kind of stuff on the constructive side of law, trying to, trying to move things forward. And again, that's where I really saw how government had become an obstacle to people and their success. Now, you had mentioned uh, Sharon, your wife, yes. uh, and she entered the picture back in college. During right? college, okay. we met and, and uh, we got engaged during college. She was a little bit behind me school-wise. I, I graduated in December of 83. Mm-hmm. She graduated in, in uh, May of, of 84. So after she graduated, then we, we got married. And we You've moved got to kids, Carlisle. Yeah. Okay. So you you moved to Carlisle because you were going, going to go to law, law school. Going to law school. Right. She got a job, and you know, God bless her. She put me through law school with <laughs> with her with her work. And uh, then after after I graduated, uh, we we started having our family, and and we've been blessed with three children, who are all 
you know, grown and, and one is married with, with four kids of his own now and, and uh, the, two, the two girls are not yet married but uh, just living fascinating, interesting lives and, and uh, so we're very blessed with our family. Well, and so while you were working as an attorney uh, locally, you also started teaching, uh, correct, at, at uh, correct. Messiah College? Correct. Uh, I know yeah. that, and I can't remember exactly where, at what point we met or how we met exactly, but I know that uh, I enjoyed coming to your classroom. Yeah, we, and, uh, and I was, yeah. I was, I was, after after leaving the, I was with the firm as I mentioned for twelve years. But then in, in nineteen ninety nine, I, I felt really called, motivated, uh, convicted that I needed to start my own law practice. Mm. So I left the firm, which was very hard to do. Um, it was, you know, we were we were on good terms. It wasn't yeah. a nasty departure. It was just that I felt the need to go do my own practice and. And then so, have to go hunt and kill uh, yeah, everything you yeah, eat, yeah, right? Yeah, feed your family your, <laughs> yeah, yourself, seriously. Right. <laughs> and you're out there by yourself, and it was a small shop. Uh, and I did that uh, ultimately for, for eight years. And then um, at the end of that eight years is when I got the opportunity to, to teach at Messiah College. One of my friends was a prof there, and he told me they were looking for someone to teach uh, economics courses. So I applied to, to Messiah College for this position teaching uh, principal's economics courses, and that worked out, which was really cool because I had, I had, about a year or two before that, I had told my wife one day, I was watching the world just see, you know, seeing how people don't seem to understand economics and how uh, so often it seems like our politicians especially don't get economics. <laughs> and I was like, I just wish I could teach economics. And uh-huh. then about two years later, this opportunity arose to, to do so. So I jumped right on that. And at that time, I, I merged my law practice because I was going to be teaching a number of courses, mm-hmm. not just not just one course. I was an adjunct, but I was teaching a, a, a fairly full load of courses, and so I, I um great deal for Messiah. Yeah, right? yeah, it was. That's <laughs> that's how that that world works when when they right, hire adjuncts. Right. But uh, so I merged my law practice with a small firm in in Carlisle at that point in time. So I was still doing law part time and then teaching part time at Messiah. And um, I know, like, yeah, I said I, I can't recall exactly how you and I met, but I know I wanted to have you come and share your perspective with my students there. Uh, which you did a number of times, and, and it was very well received and very helpful. And I was teaching the kids. My my thesis, really, for the whole course was that although the free market economic system, capitalism, isn't perfect, it is by far the most successful and only system that's ever been discovered that actually leads people to long-term prosperity. It raises the masses from poverty to prosperity consistently around the world, wherever it's sincerely tried mm-hmm. and and so I wanted the students to leave that classroom knowing knowing and it was a Christian college and I'm I'm passionate about my faith as well and how that ties into my work I wanted them to know that as Christ calls us to care for the poor part of doing that is you know part of it is obviously the traditional things you think of when you think caring for the poor you know delivering food to someone yeah. who's hungry today uh, which is obviously important but it's also important that that we adopt and embrace good public policy that, that allows people to not be poor in the first right, in the, in the right. first place or to rise up from poverty uh, into s- independence and, and so prosperity. So giving them a fish or teaching them to yeah. fish, right? Yeah. We and have I, to do both. We have to do yeah. both, right. right. And I always was very careful not to condemn right. giving the fish. Sure. Sometimes a person is starving Just today needs, and you need to give yeah. them a fish. Right. But but the, the— Ultimately, it's— teaching them to fish to take care of their family. Yeah, and so and, I was yeah. always just very excited to be doing that. And, and, and I taught a number of, of classes over a number of years, about four and a half years at Messiah. And just what a wonderful experience it was. Mm-hmm. It was just so great. And even, you know, even today I know some of the students I had and, you know, there are a few that actually 
switched their majors to economics because of my class, which is a, a really nice feeling yeah. to, to know that you made an impact. You know, there's there's some of my students who went into government. There's several of them working in the Capitol right now in, in some uh, fairly high positions. So it's it's neat to uh, you know to have that experience and then see that the people that you're you're teaching actually moved by inspired by your teaching. So as you're practicing law, teaching, uh, where does politics come into this? I mean, had you been engaged in, in politics or, I was, you know? I was, because, I, again, I, I grew up in a family where politics was important. I was always interested in current events. I was always following the news, literally from the time I was a kid. Like, I was that weird geeky kid that would watch the TV news, read the newspaper, um, read like the magazines back in the day. There was like Time and Newsweek magazines, these weekly news magazines, and I really was interested in that. Mm-hmm. So as I evolved from from that that liberal upbringing into being a self discovered uh, serious conservative, I continued to follow current events in the world and politics, and I cared deeply about it. I did not necessarily envision that I would run for office. Mm-hmm. That wasn't like on my list, but I was I was again, trying to influence the world through not only the the things we've mentioned, the teaching and the law practice, but also I did a lot of volunteer work. I was on numerous nonprofit boards. I did a lot of ministry at my church. I worked with the youth. I worked with um, other other individuals in the church. I did did, um, some like grief counseling ministry and some other things where um, I cared a lot about the world. And, and, And when the guy who was the state rep in my district announced his retirement, it didn't cross my mind that, oh, I should run for that state house seat. It wasn't until I went to work one day, and it was, um, and I know you know the story, but right. it was the morning after I had appeared uh, on, on Channel 27 News because we were up at the Capitol. You had invited me to come to a, a uh, press event that Commonwealth Foundation was doing uh, in the Capitol Rotunda about about some fraudulent data in the in the global warming data that Penn State was using, and, and it was a big controversy going on. And I spoke at that event at your invitation, and then Channel 27 News interviewed me and put me on the air on the 11 o'clock news that night. Well, that next morning when I walked into the law firm, one of the guys at the firm, one of my colleagues, had seen me on TV, and he said, Steve, I saw you on Channel 27 last night. You look good. You sounded good. You should seriously consider running for state rep. <laughs> and I kind of laughed at him. But he made a case. Like he, he didn't stop there. He kept right. telling me, "Hey, look, look. Here's the people that are running. Um, you'd be so much better. You do a great job." And and uh, and this was a uh, a, a, a Republican district. Uh, Republican that district was uh, lots of people saying, "Hey, I'm throwing my hat." Right. In, right? There was what, what there was, was all kinds of names being bandied about. Uh-huh. There were eight other people that were seriously Old, talking yeah. about running, and ultimately, I. When, what did Sharon say uh, I was when you first like, said, hey, what do you like think Like I said, about? I started laughing, and then I started thinking and started praying. And then I first person I talked to was Sharon uh, that evening. And she was like, she she was very positive. She was like, to your, you should to seriously. To your surprise? To my surprise. Yeah. I expected her to, to think it was kind of a, a wacky idea and probably not the best thing. <laughs> but she was all for it. And I talked to my pastor. He was all for it. I talked to my trusted friends. They were all for it. No one was saying, no, don't do that. I don't think that would be good. Everyone was saying, gosh, that makes a lot of sense. You, mm. you would be good at that. You can make a positive difference. You should, get, you should give it a shot. So I got into what turned out to be a seven-way primary. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was um, a couple of the people who had announced they were going to get in didn't ultimately make the ballot, but there were seven, and it was intense. It was a Republican district, so the Republican primary was, was the big deal in the race. And so I, I got um, volunteers from a couple of my former students at Messiah, other young people, people I knew in the community, and 
people rallied around and, and we had this amazing volunteer based campaign that knocked off all the other candidates, even in a um, situation where some of them were much more experienced. I mean, you could technically win this with less than 20% of yeah, the vote, and right? Yeah, I think I got like 20-some percent okay. to, to win. And I only won by like 175 votes or so. Wow. So, but it was it was cool because, you know, again, we had no experience. We just worked really hard. We ran a completely positive campaign and um, ended up really being friends with all the other candidates, even though there was a little bit of negativity out there from some of them. Uh, during the campaign, we all really became friends in the campaign trail, and uh, I was, you know, blessed to, to be the winner of that. And so, uh, then, uh, so you went on to win twenty ten, twelve, beat the Democrat fourteen, in the fall, sixteen, and then, yeah, and then ran four more times and or three more times and and won each time. So, uh, what what uh, caused you to to say, hey, I've I've done my stint in the state house. I want to run for Congress because uh, you came out with that uh, pretty early in, in 2018 that you were not going to run uh, for the state house again, uh, but we're going to pursue things in Congress. And of course, uh, things were thrown for a real loop, and maybe you'd said this back in 2017 even. Um, but uh, of course, with the uh, maps getting redrawn, that threw things for a whole nother loop. But uh, t- t- talk about that, why you decided, all right, I've done my well, stint I, yeah, in the state My question house. that I always yeah. ask myself, and, and really Sharon and I, my wife and I, we always talk about is, are you making a positive difference mm-hmm. where you are? And I always can answer that question, yes, during my years in the, in the PA State House. I felt like I was making a positive difference. But uh, people would often ask, are you ever thinking about running for higher office and other office? And I would always say, well, if, if it, the right opportunity arose, I would certainly consider that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, last summer, it was announced that uh, Congressman Lou Barletta was not going to be seeking re-election. And there had been some rumors to that effect during the course of the year. He might be going to join the administration. He might be running for Senate, different things. But... Um, each time it came up in, during when it was kind of in the abstract that he might be leaving, yeah. um, my wife and I would talk about it and decide, like, you know, we really don't want to go to D.C. That's, that's not the place for me. It's such a mess down there. It's ugly. It's nasty. Uh, it's, it's very hard to make a positive difference. And here I am in, in Pennsylvania, you know, gaining some seniority, gaining a good reputation for, for being able to get things done and, and, and having voted for my, my conservative values consistently for eight years, I felt like, well, I was in a good position. I would just stay and continue to do what mm-hmm. I was doing. But then Lou Barletta actually announced that he was not running for re-election and he was going to run for U.S. Senate. And the, the calculus changed. It was no longer abstract. It was real. Here's a, con- a vacancy in a congressional seat in the district where I lived. I was still wrestling with it. I talked with Congressman Scott Perry, who's a friend. I knew him during the time when he was still a member of the state house. And it was, it was, I think, Scott Perry's words more so than anything else that made me think that I really needed to consider and, and make the decision to run, which was Scott basically told me after I gave him all the reasons I didn't want to go to Congress, um, he said, yeah, those are all selfish reasons. You talk about why you don't want to go, why you're not going to like it, why you're not going to be able you're going to be frustrated. I can see Scott saying that to and, you. Yeah. And... He's like, Steve, we need solid conservatives mm-hmm. in D.C. We desperately need solid conservatives who aren't going to be twisted by the, the swamp, who aren't going to be turned into liberals. And, and, and uh, you know, that it was that impassioned speech from Scott Perry mm-hmm. that really got me thinking, you know, this is not about what do I want to do? This is like, do I have a duty to run? Mm. And 
Sharon and I worked through that for a couple weeks and again came to the conclusion that, oh my gosh, we have to do this. This is not an option. We don't even really want to do this. We just have to. It's our duty to give this a shot. And so I announced my campaign at that time. I also announced that I would not be seeking re-election to the State House because that, to me, would be a slap in the face to what I've always stood for. Because uh, when you when you you can under Pennsylvania law, you can actually run simultaneously for, both, yes. for Congress in a state and a state. There House are people seat. doing that this very. And if election, you do, so yeah. and you win the congressional seat, yeah. and you win your state house seat, then you have to resign your state house seat, trigger a special election, which costs county taxpayers tens of thousands of dollars, and perhaps even worse than that, it sets up the process where the party, party insiders the from the Democratic yeah. Party and the Republican Party each pick a nominee with no input from the voters. Mm. And so the voters are deprived from the, the opportunity to pick your successor. And I just couldn't abide with that. Mm-hmm. I also knew that if I, if I was running for both, I knew running for Congress was going to be tough. And there would be times where I'd want to quit and how easy it would be to just walk away from it if I had this backup plan. Mm-hmm. So all those reasons together, I knew I knew I had to resign from the – not resign, but announce that I wasn't going to seek re-election for the state house. And I was all into the congressional so race. So you're running uh, in what we're what we call now the old maps, right. uh, the, the Marletta, map, yes, a district that was going to be a tough district, yeah. but a district that was very realistic for me, given uh, where it, the voters uh, were, and given where yeah. the population yeah. centers were. It included all of my state house district. It included all of my main media market, which is the Harrisburg Lancaster mm-hmm. area media market. Uh, it, it was it was um, there was a lot of reasons I had to I had to be optimistic about my shots there. Now, it wasn't going to be easy. Maybe I would have lost that primary, too. I don't know. But at least I had a very viable shot. Then the whole debacle with the the state Supreme Court. You mean the Supreme Legislature. The Supreme Legislature (laughs) readopted a whole new set of maps. Well, actually, uh, as a law professor in, at Stanford that did the whole map. Right, but, yeah. Uh, we're it, getting it too and technical. And I don't want to yeah. get into yeah, the weeds sure. there, but bottom line is about halfway through what would have been a nine-month campaign, I discover that I'm no longer no in longer a district in, yeah. <laughs> that, that I was planning to run in. And the new district that my house is now in is a very different district. The old district was nine counties. Uh, including Cumberland. Mm-hmm. The new district was 10 counties, including a tiny sliver of Cumberland, but the nine other counties were completely different than the, the nine counties I had in the other district. There was no overlap. Mm. So completely new area. It extended very far to the west, completely outside for the most part of the, the Harrisburg area media market, all the way out to Johnstown, Altoona, uh, Huntington, places, uh, Somerset, areas that, that I had no name ID but this, and, too, was an open seat. But it in also that turned out yeah. that there was that the, the congressman there had decided not to run for reelection also. And it was an it was an open seat. There were there was a group of people running for it. I met with my team. We, we studied the numbers, the population distribution, the, the media market, the cost of advertising. And we realized we still had a viable path. Mm. It wasn't going to be easy. But again, it was never going to be easy to, to win a congressional right. seat. It never is. Uh, we had raised a lot of money in the in the in the. Uh, first phase of the campaign, we'd been very successful with our fundraising, relatively speaking, and uh, ahead of the other candidates in terms of actual money raised. And it looked like, hey, there's still a viable shot to, to make this happen. So, but not, but not dissimilar to your first state house run in how many candidates uh, running for, now for we that have, seat? Now we have an eight-way <laughs> race, and, and um, it's, it's looking like a, a really wide-open race. 
and it turned out it was a really wide open race. Um, and so I did what I could in a four and a half month compressed campaign to get to know the new areas, to get to know the people, let them get to know me, obviously. We worked really hard. Uh, in the end, the incumbent endorsed a certain candidate who also was a candidate that had in a very ample personal fortune to mm -hmm. use for their campaign. And so although we had raised more money than everyone else, um, this candidate was able to suddenly, utilizing some of his own resources and, and some D.C. PACs that got involved, uh, to really outspend everyone else, including me, pretty dramatically. Uh, and so at the end of the race, we came in, I came in third out of eight, but it was close. I was like 3.6% away from the winner, hmm. just a few thousand votes. It was a very, very close race all, all around amongst the top tier candidates. And, um, but, you know, I didn't win it. Yeah. So. so you gave it your best try. Uh, right. And you don't have to go down to the swamp. Uh, so so uh, the good news, uh, of course, for those that uh, were uh, very fond of your time and tenure in the House, uh, is that you're not going too far. Uh, in fact, you're just coming down the Capitol steps uh, to the Commonwealth Foundation. Uh, talk about what uh, you intend to do. I guess I don't know if you're taking any time, but from November uh, uh, 30th, uh, December 1, you're starting at Commonwealth yeah, Foundation. Well, God is good. And, and it turned out that, you know, unbeknownst to me, he had this really amazing backup plan. <laughs> and so um, I was very blessed when the opportunity came up to, to join the Commonwealth Foundation. I have, as you mentioned, I've been working with CF not only my entire eight years um, as a state rep, but for years before that. Uh, I knew who CF was, what it stood for the credible data, the, the being an honest broker of, of good quality policy materials and information, um, just a steady force for good in, in Harrisburg, on, again, on those core issues of economic freedom, the things that, that I care most about, mm -hmm. at least that, I mean, I, I almost maybe care most about is, is the wrong term, the things I care deeply about in the political arena that I think right. I can make, help make a difference in. So... When this opportunity came up, I, I was very excited to see that, that kind of synergy. So we philosophically, ethically, these, this is like the perfect fit. And so I'll be working with CF uh, in their government affairs portfolio, and I will be working starting in December uh, with you know, advocating for policy in, in the Capitol. And, and so I'm very excited about that, and, and I feel like it's an opportunity to do the thing I've always talked about, which is making a positive difference. And how have uh, your colleagues responded to your uh, retirement, uh, to your, I guess, not going too far, uh, and knowing where you're headed? Uh, I know that you were po uh, sort of a brunt of a joke from retiring uh, Representative John Taylor. Good tongue-in-cheek, uh, some laughter on the floor in his Well, there's different, street. you know, there's obviously reps have different political viewpoints, and yeah. so— even in our Republican caucus, there are there are very conservative representatives, such as myself. There are more moderately conservative representatives, and then there's some on the left leftward side of our caucus that are just not very conservative. <laughs> and they would readily admit that yeah, they're sure, not. Sure. They come from from districts that are quite different. And and uh, John Taylor is one of those. And uh, he was giving. He happened to be also retiring this cycle, and he was giving his retirement speech the other day. And he very deadpan announced that. He was still working on finalizing all the details, but he was able to report that he was 80 to 90 percent sure that he was going to be joining Steve Bloom to go work at the Commonwealth Foundation. <laughs> and it took about, I don't know, 10 seconds for people to realize he was joking. And then it became obvious because it made no sense because he's, he's, you know, he, and he, again, he would readily admit and did in his speech that 
um, he doesn't often see eye to eye with, with the, those policy issues that, that, that we advocate for here um, but where as, we, as where allies we, with, yeah. with, the, with the Commonwealth Foundation. But where we are able to work together, we do. But where we are able yeah. to work together, we do. And, and I've always had a, a, um, a good relationship with, with John Taylor and many people who are uh, not only on the leftward side of the Republican Party, but also Democrats. Mm-hmm. And part of that is my roots. Like I can talk to them because I came from those roots. And I feel like I, I'm not afraid of them. I, I know that they're human beings with, with um, they're they're they they're not necessarily ill intentioned. Yeah. Their intentions they, are good. They just often are lacking certain information about the actual data. Like what happens when you enact these policies? How does it how does it affect the people you're trying to help? Is it really going to help them or is it going to hurt them? Yeah, and I and, think that that that's where, um, unfortunately, when we assume uh, ill will or assume evil intent, rather than Hey, uh, we want the same thing. We want to lift people out of poverty or make yeah. sure jobs are created. We just have a different way of getting and there. And it's interesting, or Matt, because you asked me early on about like arguments with my, my family members yeah. and my parents. Th- these are like that was my training ground mm. for that exact argument because mm-hmm. I would argue with my mom or my dad or other relatives uh, often, but it was done in a loving spirit because yeah. hey, they're your parents. Yeah. Like, you're not gonna right. You know, you know their intentions are good, and we we often come to the real realization that yeah, the goal was the same. It was just that that they had a a, a path that wasn't actually going to get them to that goal. It wasn't going to get the people they were trying to help to the goal that they were trying to take them to. So when we see a lot of the nastiness that's out there, uh, you know, at the certainly at the federal level, and just uh, the the hostility towards people of the other side, and then you get it from both the the left and the right. Um, are you hopeful about our future? Um, based on your experience in the House and, uh, you know, in the Pennsylvania House, um, are you what, – what, what's your assessment? Since you've kind of been on the inside, certainly at the state level, yeah, it's, uh, it's do you see that very different than the federal? It's, and it's then, definitely a yeah. microcosm of the federal. Okay. And, and, you know, we don't make the news as much or in, in such a big way, but it's mostly very parallel. It's like a parallel universe, the mm-hmm. same kind of thing, that the, um, a lot of hostility, a lot of, lot of um, animosity – and it's not always the case, but there, there's definitely, we, we have our fair share of that. Some of the things that surprised me, I guess, I didn't know until I actually got into politics as a politician, as an elected office candidate and then office holder, I didn't realize how nasty the infighting amongst the individual parties is. So mm. um, inside the Republican Party, there's, there's nasty fighting and nasty rivalry. And inside the Democratic Party, there's nasty fighting and nasty rivalry. I didn't really grasp that as a sort of a news consumer from the outside. I didn't understand how, how much tension there was within each party. That's a very real thing. Hmm. I also didn't realize how, how tense the relationships were between the different branches of government. Or so, between the different houses, the yeah, House and the Senate. Between the House yeah, and yeah, Senate, yeah. between the, 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 the House and Senate and the the executive branch, even when they're all republicanly mm-hmm. controlled. Right. Because um, <laughs> you had that experience under Tom Corbett, right? right? And the, there was a lot of tension between mm-hmm. between the, the House and Senate and the, and the What executive. do you attribute that to? What, why, why is it, why I, can't I, we all just get along? Is, you know, well, that's the question. In part, in part it, is, it is what our founders intended. They wanted there to be mm-hmm. no particular centers of power that controlled everything. Mm-hmm. They wanted a, a government that was full of... Um, Diverse individuals with different perspectives and mm-hmm. different interests, and so that that tension that I saw that was so real, I, it, it made me realize that 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 stuff you learn in school about the separation of powers that the founders designed—it's not just an abstract thing; it's a very real thing. 
and it and it prevents anyone from dominating the insti- the, the the government. That's interesting. So so we really we ought to embrace that, right? Because that's a, a healthy tension. Um, and that trying to flee from it or say, oh, everything just needs to be hunky-dory really wouldn't be healthy for us. Right. It's how we manage those tensions and that when I disagree with you, that I don't see you as evil, but I just see you as maybe wrong and that we need to work out, Correct. all right, what's the compromise? And it seems that maybe we've lost that, that we say, oh, we want everybody to sing Kumbaya uh, rather right. than just, saying, let's just have it. Which was never the case yeah, and, and isn't, isn't healthy. Interesting. Right. So, but but embracing conflict in a constructive way mm-hmm. is important. So I, I came from, as I mentioned, a background being a lawyer, and maybe that helped me transitioning into to being a member of the state house. That I've often worked with colleagues who with whom I disagree vehemently on issues. You know, and I didn't do a lot of litigation work, but I did a lot of work where you're negotiating and you're you know you have different perspectives mm-hmm. from, um, and you disagree, but it doesn't mean you can't st- still be collegial with your with your fellow attorneys. And that was a big deal in law practice to always still be able to, at the end of the day, to, to call someone your friend, even though you, you very much disagreed over a particular case or issue. Same thing in, in, in the state house. You want to be able to, and I haven't always succeeded at this. I don't want to put myself on a pedestal. Yeah. I've failed at this too sometimes. But you still want to be able to treat your, your, your colleagues with whom you disagree respectfully and still be able to, on a personal level, be friends with them. A sad day in the House because we we just recently learned of the passing of two of uh, the Democratic members uh, who passed away uh, suddenly and unexpectedly. And I think yeah, of just one, in their low sixties. Yeah, so. um, Mike O'Brien and and uh, Sid Kabulich. I didn't really know Mike O'Brien, but um, Sid was a Democrat who I'd gotten to know a little bit and considered a friend. And you know, even though again we disagreed on policy, mm-hmm. um, I, I literally gasped when they announced that he had passed away because it was you know, unexpected and you're losing a friend. Yeah. And, you know, that's the spirit in which I think a lot of the members, we strive for that anyway, um, don't always succeed. And, and But that's important that you can have that vigorous, energetic disagreement, but not actually hate each other. So do you think that you'll be able to bring that to your new role at Commonwealth Foundation and, and sort of be a, a bridge between? Because obviously, as a House member, you kind of have your tribe, right? Uh, now you're just advocating for public, good public policy. Um, and look at Commonwealth Foundation. Uh, when I was there, we worked with Democrats on, you know, criminal justice reform and and uh, m- many other things that uh, were important. Yeah. That that is important because there are there are conservative ideas that pretty much everyone's going to agree on. In in my time as a legislator, there were there were bills I did that were in the arena of welfare reform. Mm-hmm. Um, arena of tax reform, where I got very significant Democratic votes in favor of my my bills, or even sometimes unanimous votes that were Republican bills. All the Republicans were voting for them, but also a large number of Democrats because they were good ideas. Mm-hmm. And the, certainly that same principle carries forward with with the, the policies that 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 CF advocates for. They're they're sound policies that actually make people better off. So there's an example: the realm of of, of prison reform, corrections reform. Who doesn't agree that, that obviously we want a safe society, we want um, a, a judicial system and a system of, of punishment that is effective, but no one wants it to be more expensive than necessary. Yeah. No one wants we to also inc- want correction, right? No one wants to incarcerate people who shouldn't be incarcerated, right. who aren't, aren't a threat to society, who are just costing the taxpayers money for no particular positive benefit. So there's, there's a lot of issues of that nature where the, the interests do align. 
Yeah. Well, Steve, uh, we look forward to uh, your, uh, I guess, third career uh, now, uh, but applying all the things that you've learned and really appreciate uh, your work as a state representative, uh, truly an admirer of how you uh, conducted yourself, how you champion your conservative uh, principles, while also uh, creating the friendships, I think, that do transcend the partisan divide. And uh, wish you well uh, as you you retire and move on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.